On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported that the priest, chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer, to, <clears throat> prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by your Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations raise, rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the law and against his appointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your, <coughs> what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform great miracles and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then we turn over into James. James chapter 5 in, on page 1150. <clears throat> and we're beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and appoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together if we are able, and we're going to sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. <laughs> Trouble everywhere. 
To take a seat. Let's spend some time in silence doing exactly that, taking to the Lord in prayer all the things that are on our hearts. So let's do that for a couple of minutes. The things that burden us, we give to you, Lord God. We give to you our fears this morning. We pass over to you the things that have weighed heavily on our hearts this week. We give to you our family. We give all to you, Lord Jesus. For you alone are the one who can carry the things that burden us. I thank you that you say, come to me. And I proclaim over each one of us, Come to the Lord Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And he asks us to walk with him. So Lord, may we do that. May we give to you the things that we need to right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Nigel, let me pray for you. And Nigel's going to bring our reflections Thank you for the uh, mission and giving report as well. So, Lord God, we thank you for our brother, Nigel. We bless you for him. Thank you for what he will bring to us this morning. May we be built up through the words that he brings to us. May we receive boldness this morning. As we look at the Apostles' Prayer, powerful prayers, Lord, may we uh, be inspired to do likewise. Lord, may uh, this teaching not just be words, may they be life for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Bless you, Nigel. Thank you, Chris. Good morning. <clears throat> so this morning, 
we come to the uh, third in our series on powerful prayers. And we're going to begin by looking at the prayer of the early disciples that Ian read to us uh, from Acts chapter 4 and consider how it can be a model perhaps for our own praying as a community of faith. And we're also this morning going to consider our responsibility to pray and intercede for the wider world. And then we're going to have a look at examples of how Paul prayed for Christians in the churches that he was instrumental in founding and use this as a model about how we might pray for each other individually. So let's first of all look at that passage that we read from Acts 4 together. And what was the context for that particular prayer that Ian hinted at? Well, it had been a very interesting 24 hours in the lives of Peter and John. They had been teaching in the temple, and during that time, they'd healed a beggar. And they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus to the assembled crowds. And according to that passage, the number of believers had grown to about 5,000 by that stage. So understandably, the Jewish authorities were rather alarmed. And they sent the temple guard off to the temple to arrest Peter and John and put them in jail overnight. The following morning, they were questioned by Annas, the high priest, and various other leaders who were astonished at the boldness of Peter and John, such uneducated men. But they couldn't deny the healing that had taken place because the beggar had sneaked in at the back and was standing around and everyone was pointing, pointing to him. And all the authorities could do at the end of a long questioning was to threaten Peter and John, order them not to speak about Jesus anymore, and then release them. But Peter and John, before going, said, I'm afraid we just cannot help but speak about Jesus whom we've spent time with, whom we've seen, whom we've known, and who is now alive again. And having been released, they reported back to the believers, and there was doubtless a great deal of relief and celebration, a big party, and it resulted in the prayer that we heard about in chapter 4. So what are the key elements of that prayer? Well, first of all, in verse 24, the first thing they did was to praise God that he was and is sovereign, that he created the earth, that he was in control. That was the starting point of their praying. And then in verses 25 and 26, they quoted from a scripture in Psalm 2. That was a reminder that God had always placed his chosen people among nations and individuals who would oppose him. They'd oppose any anointed leader, including Jesus as Messiah. God's chosen people would always face opposition. And then more specifically at their time, they recalled the fact that King Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, had conspired between them with much toing and froing to get Jesus put to death, which at the time, of course, had seemed a disaster, but in fact had all been part of God's plan because Jesus' death led to that possibility of forgiveness of sin and Jesus' resurrection led to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of those disciples. 
So with this all being part of God's plan, they then finally said, well, here we are, Lord. We're acknowledging the threats we've got from these religious authorities. Please consider them. Just note them. They didn't pray against them. They didn't ask God to zap them and get rid of them. They just said, Lord, here are the threats. You can see them. Please consider them. But at the same time, please give us boldness to continue to speak about Jesus regardless. And what was God's response? Well, we read that once again, he filled them afresh with the Holy Spirit and gave them boldness to go on sharing their knowledge of Jesus among the crowds, despite the opposition that they were getting. And so for us, 2,000 years later, when we face opposition or difficulty of any kind, let's remember that, first of all, however hard it is, we need to praise and thank God that he is sovereign and in control. Then recognize that Jesus reminded us that there would always be opposition. He faced it and he told his disciples they would face it. And here it was coming true. But that whatever happens is part of God's plan. And after that, we can bring the details of that opposition or that difficulty to God and leave it with him. And pray for confidence and boldness to be witnesses to Jesus through our words and our actions. Not an easy thing to do. And, and what came to my mind, in fact, was another Old Testament story, which has always struck me back in the second book of Kings, chapter 19, when King Hezekiah in Jerusalem received an insulting letter from Sennacherib, king of Assyria. A letter that was ridiculing God and stating that Hezekiah couldn't possibly prevent the overthrow of Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah, holed up in Jerusalem, would have been justified in despairing. But that chapter's wonderful because it says that Hezekiah went to the temple and spread out this letter before the Lord. Maybe it came on several parchments and scrolls. He spread it out. And he said, Lord, you can see this letter from Sennacherib. I'm just going to pray about it and leave it with you. You're the ruler of the kingdoms. There's this huge army outside. Here it is. Take note. Consider it. Not long after that, Sennacherib woke up one morning and found 185,000 of his soldiers in the camp had died. So he withdrew from the siege of Jerusalem, went back to Assyria, and was assassinated by his sons. And just struck me this sort of, here we are, Lord, here's the letter, here's the problem, it's over to you. So perhaps we can metaphorically take situations of opposition and difficulty and problems that we have and spread them out before the Lord and say, here you are, Lord, this is the situation. I don't know what to do, but please act for the sake of bringing your kingdom a bit closer here on earth and give me the confidence and boldness to carry on living for you. And so the early disciples came together regularly for prayer. 
as we read about, and we read about that in chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles. It was one of the things they did, along with breaking of bread and the fellowship and the teaching, as well as reading about it in chapter 4. And they came together for a variety of reasons. It was an integral part of their life together. They came together early on to choose a replacement for Judas, so they would have 12 apostles once again. They came together when they had problems with trying to establish a food bank, and the Jewish and the Greek widows were getting very upset. They weren't getting their fair shares, and so they had to choose seven deacons full of faith to try and do this job, and they prayed about it, and they chose seven people, one of whom was Stephen, whose story you probably remember. And then they came came together again to pray when Peter ended up in prison again. And there was that remarkable story where the angel came and opened the prison doors and out Peter strode. And they came together where they were planning a further expansion of the gospel and they were trying to work out who to send and they prayed for guidance and Barnabas and Saul were set aside and sent off to establish churches in the area. All of these reasons for coming together to pray. And it seems that coming together to pray was a key element in the common life of those disciples. And we heard in the letter of James also about the importance of coming together and praying for each other, for healing in an appropriate way, both coming to the elders and also praying for each other. Another thing that went on regularly in their life as a community of faith. And here in Campbell, we've begun to hold prayer meetings once a month on a Sunday evening, attended by a number of people. And people come together here to pray in their home groups and at the weekly staff meeting and before services. So perhaps with these examples, we can ask ourselves the question, is praying together a high enough priority for us? And if not, does that need to change? And if so, how might we get involved? So as well as just coming together to pray in those general terms, every week in church we're asked to come together to intercede for our world and situations in it. And the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, a young church leader whom he was mentoring, and said... I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We need to pray for those in authority. And I suggest we're not just doing this selfishly for ourselves, that we might live quiet and peaceful lives but because we want this for other people not just here but in other parts of the world as well as in our own country given the command that Jesus gave us to love one another as we love ourselves and so we need to pray for our own government and political leaders whatever we might think of their particular policies at any given time And for all those with responsibility for trying to bring about peace in situations such as Syria and Iraq and the Yemen or in war-torn African countries or wherever we happen to have a heart 
and knowledge about situations going on. And we need to pray for those leaders, whether or not they acknowledge God in any way. Because God is ultimately the ruler of the earth, even though he chooses not to exercise his power and impose justice at any particular time. But does this ever have any effect? Well, there are many testimonies about the power of prayer in the period leading up to the first elections in South Africa in 1994. I'd like to read you one example of what Michael Cassidy, the founder of African Enterprise, wrote in a book, A Witness Forever. <coughs> I should say, perhaps as some of you know, Linda and I have quite close connections in South Africa with some close friends, and we visited there in 1995, the year after the elections. And it was very interesting talking to people about their experience of the early 90s there. This is what Michael Cassidy wrote. Throughout South Africa in the years 1991 to 1994, prayer intensified. A great cry to God seemed to be coming from a nation that he should act and intervene to help us, for we could not deliver ourselves. Special prayer meetings were held constantly in hundreds of churches. The state and its leaders were earnestly prayed for in almost every service of almost every church. And individual people from little old ladies, schoolboys and students, through to businessmen, housewives and factory workers, were daily calling on God for his power to be made manifest in the national crisis. One visitor to South Africa told friends back in the States, South Africa is becoming one huge prayer meeting. And my own conviction is that first and foremost in South Africa's deliverance was the foundation of prayer. Many of us through these times sought to remind people that many things can be done after you have prayed, but nothing really lasting will be achieved until you have prayed. And even the press at later stages were saying that the peaceful elections were a miracle and couldn't understand however they had managed to take place, having sent their leading reporters to report on what they anticipated would be a bloodbath and a civil war. And there are many similar stories from Bishop Desmond Tutu, for whom prayer was critical as he sought to maintain peace prior to the elections and chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Committee after the elections. And doubtless many of us will have read other examples of the way in which intercessory prayer has brought about change in seemingly unresolvable situations. So we need to come together in prayer as a family of faith and pray for boldness. We need to pray for other parts of the world. But I thought it'd be interesting, as we look at the way the apostles pray, to look at a small selection of how Paul himself prayed for the early Christians who had formed small church communities as a result of his missionary journeys. Because Paul, in the letters that he writes, quite clearly is praying for all of those people around the area. And when Paul prayed, he always began with thanksgiving. The first thing he ever did was to thank God for what he'd heard about the life and witness and progress of the Christians in those communities. So perhaps we could spend more time thanking God for what we see 
in the lives of the Christians we know here and further afield. It does us good to thank God for each other. And then when he wrote to the Ephesians, he prayed that they might know Jesus better. He prayed that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. He prayed that they might know the height and width and depth and and length of Christ's love. So perhaps we could pray that others get to know Jesus better. And maybe suggest practical ways that that could happen through meeting together and ways of reading the Bible. Perhaps we can pray that all of us, especially those facing difficult circumstances, might have a fresh revelation of the extent of Christ's love surrounding us at whatever stage of life we're at and whatever we're going through. And then when Paul prayed for the believers in Philippi, we read that he prayed that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He prayed that they might be able to discern what is best. So perhaps we can pray for each other for our love to abound. We can pray for each other to have a greater knowledge of God and a discernment about how God is guiding us in times of change and what is best for us and for our families and those we love. Do we pray for that guidance for one another? And finally, as an example, when Paul prayed for the Christians at Colossae. He doesn't pray small prayers, does he? He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He prayed that they might live a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, He prayed that they might have great endurance and patience. So perhaps we could pray that the Holy Spirit will fill others and bring them wisdom and understanding. Pray that the lives of others might reflect Jesus in the way we live and that the good work that we do might bear fruit perhaps the fruit of the Spirit being reflected in the way we carry out our tasks at work or in the community or in homes. And if Paul prays about people having great endurance and patience, I'm sure we know many people who are facing situations where they need endurance and patience at the moment. And if we follow Paul's example, we need to pray for those people that they might be granted the endurance and the patience they need in the situations they find themselves in. That's just a few examples. And if you were to look back at Paul's letters, you'll find many examples of how he prayed, which might encourage us to pray for others in that way. And I suspect we often pray for some of these things for ourselves, 
But I wonder how consciously we pray them for other people. I know this is a challenge for me. So to conclude, let's be encouraged by the example of the other disciples gathering together for prayer. Recognize that God's in control whatever the circumstances and ask for boldness. Gather together to pray for guidance and for practical decisions that have to be taken. Pray for each other for healing in an appropriate way as the guidelines are laid down. Pray for leaders, for all in authority. And if I can throw in here, for those who are leading those small mission partnerships we have out in Uzumitele in Kenya, out in Goma, facing difficulties we can hardly dream of and support them in our prayers. And then follow Paul's example and pray for each other to grow as Christians by asking God to grant all of those things he prayed about. And so may we be encouraged to seek to commit more time to prayer, especially coming together with others to pray. Because if we do this, we're more likely to see God's kingdom grow in our community and further afield including in the lives and witness of our family of faith here and among our mission partners we're committed to support overseas. May God use this example to help us to think and reflect and to change our own lives and the way we conduct ourselves when we think about prayer. Amen.